It's Great Mondays Radio. I'm Josh Levine, your host, founder of Great Mondays. We help executives from hypergrowth technology and social enterprise organizations build cultures that attract, engage, and retain top talent. If you'd like to be a guest on our program, hang out for about 20 minutes and I'll tell you how. All right, welcome back to Great Mondays Radio. Today, uh, Willie Jackson of The Ready Set, uh, a diversity strategy firm, is with us. Uh, he's someone that I've known for a few years now, doing some really interesting work uh, with leaders around their diversity strategy. And so we wanted to get inside his head and hear what he's been hearing and maybe share some insights around uh, the intersection of culture and diversity strategy. So welcome to Great Mondays Radio, Willie. Thanks for being on. Josh, honored to be here. Yeah. So you're in Brooklyn now and um, you've been with the Ready Set for a few years. Tell me a little bit about the work you're doing uh, and, and how it gives you kind of, I would say, a front row seat into some of the um, kind of more progressive or uh, uh, more culturally aware, maybe leaders in, in uh, corporate America. Let me start by sharing a little bit about how I got into this. And I love talking Great. about myself, so this will work. My background <laughs> is actually technology. I went to school for IT, and I started my career with Accenture in Atlanta. And as I say, that was terrible. I hated it. Glad I got out, right? Did four years, did my time. Uh, and, and in truth, I had some maturing to do with another talk show. Um, the point is, I spent about a decade kind of finding my way, figuring out what it is that I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And I'm very proud of figuring out things on my own terms, even though it cost me greatly. Again, another conversation for another day. But um, where it's relevant to what I do today is the uprising in Ferguson, Missouri, specifically Mike Brown's death, um, impacted me personally. Um, I don't know if this will be video, audio only, yeah. but mm -hmm. I'm a big black guy. And that matters in general and specifically in an American context. And although I grew up with a tremendous amount of relative privilege, I didn't grow up wealthy, but I didn't need anything. I didn't suffer economic experiences and practical experiences that um, you might associate with, with, with the Black community. So um, it took an awakening of sorts for me to really come into contact. And I had a fairly whitewashed upbringing and education, which is say I went to Christian private schools and the like. So it was an opportunity for me to confront a lot of what I didn't know and what I didn't learn. So I started an online magazine for Black men called Abernathy, uh, and that was an intellectual coming of age for me. And so the, the punchline is that paired with the consulting background and some of the work that I had been doing and just kind of figuring out how to be okay. And I had a point of view around the way that Black men were caricatured in the media. And then by extension, this, this lens of inclusion applied to society, applied to work more generally applied to tech in particular, where I was playing, um, that kind of lit a fire in me. So through a series of happy accidents, I found my way to Ready Set. I was hire number three about five years ago, and it's been an amazing ride. So that's a little bit of the origin story. It was not foreordained. I did not know that you could have a career doing what I do. And I describe myself as someone who helps lead conversations across lines of difference and helping people to kind of have a steadier hand and hold their back straighter in those conversations because 
there's no there's no opting out of conversations and the realities of racial tensions in America when you look like me. I'm 6'3", 250. Like, you know, I am visibly who I am and what I right. am. Um, no and I moved to these spaces, predominantly white spaces, with a lot of privilege because, as I say, uh, and I'll pause after this, but I have all the credibility of being a person of color in general, a Black person specifically, and all the privilege of being a dude, right? So... I tend to be very senior in the rooms that I'm in. I tend to get the benefit of the doubt. I have a lot of credibility. So the fact of my social identity is actually a superpower in the work that I do. And so a lot of what I try and do is unpack what I just shared in different contexts to invite people to recognize the privilege they hold and the way that this can be kind of operationalized as a superpower in their allyship practice if we wanna kind of think about this in terms of corporate language. Yeah, really interesting. So what is it that um, organizations are struggling with um, that you have observed? Because clearly there's a, there's a lot. There's a lot that's, that, that leaders are struggling with. But in, in this particular case, and I think I would argue fairly easily that um, this conversation has to be had in order to um, at, at least acknowledge in order to have kind of a fully um, uh, aware culture, right? We have to at least acknowledge that. So when when you are walking into the room, and, and this could be a question about what are the problems and challenges that you're being asked to, to, to address, and it may be that, but it doesn't have to be. When you are, because sometimes I'm asked to solve a particular problem and I walk in and I'm go, oh, that's not the problem that you really need to be solving. Mm -hmm. So what are they, what are we struggling with? Let me share one theme that I consistently see across industry, uh, across geography. People care a lot about doing the right thing, but they're so afraid of saying the wrong thing that they don't say anything at all. In other words, we've been so conditioned to fear using outmoded language or using an inappropriate turn of phrase or just saying the wrong thing to the wrong person on the wrong day. A lot of people in positions of authority and power are just opting out of the whole enterprise and saying, look, it's just not worth it to me because we recognize that in this politically fraught climate when language matters and it, look, I get called into a lot of spaces where it's a bunch of white people language policing each other and feeling very awkward about not having people of color to quote unquote practice their allyship with. Mm. So it gets really awkward, right? It, it, it gets really awkward when people feel aligned around their values, but they don't have that representational diversity that maybe maps to their values and they don't know the right thing to say. So people feel stuck, people feel embarrassed, uh, people have complicated feelings around their privilege. And so it's tough, but this notion of being terrified to say or do the wrong thing is paralyzing so many leaders. And I'll give you an example. In my workshops and sessions, we often put people in sticky scenarios so they can practice working their way through them. And so I might say something like, what would you do if you have a person of color on your team who is underperforming? And you've noticed that they start to show up to meetings without their camera on, assuming a virtual or hybrid context. And you know they might, it might be related to headlines in the news, things that might impact them on the basis of their race or their social identity or whatever the case may be. But you don't want to overstep 
and you don't want to say something that's going to cause you to step in it. How do you start to approach that challenge, right? If you come in a little too hot and you're totally off base about the assumption, then you could really embarrass yourself and cause harm to that relationship. And maybe the relationship isn't actually damaged, but you're so embarrassed and you're so ashamed that it causes harm to the dynamic, right? So those are the types of things that we like to unpack live in our conversation with support in breakouts, for example, and debrief them so people have the tools. In other words, if your first time having a difficult conversation across lines of racial and gender and ethnic difference is live when there's a performance challenge and maybe you're under-caffeinated or over-caffeinated or you're jet-lagged or uh, your kids are driving in us or the circumstances aren't perfect, which is to say real life, then you're probably going to mess up you're probably not going to do your best. So I try and create the conditions where people are kind to themselves, this is one of our community agreements, and kind to each other. Give yourself the grace to intervene and to speak up imperfectly, because we're never going to nail it right out of the gate, right? So that's an example of what's top of mind for another for a lot of people. How do I react when I see a headline about a murder in the news? And I want to mention it to my Black employee, but I don't want to trigger them by bringing something to their attention that they weren't aware of and they did that they didn't actually want to discuss but i also want to demonstrate that i'm on the right side of history i want to be an ally i'm one of the good ones those sorts of things it's really really <laughs> yeah, right. tricky one of the it's, one of the good ones yeah truly right. it's really it's really, yeah, we all want to see ourselves as good people and mm -hmm. we're looking particularly in like progressive liberal circles we're looking for ways to signal um that we're one of the good ones right and that signaling can get people into a lot of trouble so that's just an example of yeah. some of what's top of mind for leaders that i support so if you are a leader um, listening to this podcast and um, maybe you've um, found yourself in a scenario where you're like, I don't know if I should say something or is there a, is there a, a mindset? Is there a way of considering how to address? Obviously, we can't talk about all the particular challenges and we don't need to even talk about the one that you just shared. But is there um, some advice? that um, is something that you can share now that might at least help start the conversation, make it okay to advance that? Because what I hear you saying is not having the conversation is not, is not the answer either. Yeah, so it's deeply personal, right? And I'll offer some general guidance. One is a reflection and the other is more tactical. The reflection is notice where you are. Are you looking to offload some anxiety, some guilt, some mm. icky feelings, right? Are you looking to metabolize those? If so, pause, work on that, address that first. Because if you are shedding all of this emotional energy, uh, and the other person has to metabolize it, then yeah. that's going to make for a challenging conversational dynamic. So step one, get your house in order, like make sure that you can show up to that conversation with a solid emotional base. And what is your motivation? Base. I think maybe is absolutely. What is your motivation? That? Are you trying to feel better about the world? Right. And then implicitly asking that person to say everything's okay and make it okay for you because mm -hmm. that, that probably runs counter to your actual goals. So that's one thing. Check in with yourself. Thing number two, I'll give you a tactical um, step. 
allow people to opt into the conversation instead of forcing them to opt out if they don't want to have the conversation. In other words, if you are senior to this individual, there's a power dynamic. And so if you show up in a moment of inspiration on a Tuesday morning and you're one-on-one -on -one and say, hey, I saw this insert terrible headline in the Times, uh, wanted to check in and see if you're okay. That's a little weird. That's a challenging place to enter the conversation, particularly if you don't have the kind of trust and rapport that makes that conversation mm. okay, right? You yeah. need, we re we have to recognize and remember that we're operating with a dearth of trust, particularly across lines of difference if we haven't spent time building that rapport and building that trust. And so instead of springing that conversation on the person, and because you're their manager, they feel compelled or obligated to engage you in that conversation, which might give you what you want in the moment, but might not be healthy for the relationship in general, right. you could send them an email and you could say, hey, I've been working on X, or I noticed that there have been some really uncomfortable things taking place in the news. I would also encourage people to be much more specific than they tend to be. Um, we can come back to that, but um, I would mention specifically, you saw this headline and you've been really disturbed by what's been going on and you wanted to check in with them as a human to make sure that they're okay. If you'd ever like to discuss this, my door is open please put 15 minutes on my calendar. Love to chat with you. So that way the person can choose to opt into the conversation instead of under duress, either capitulating and playing ball or right. you know opting out of the conversation awkwardly. And then you feel embarrassed or you feel ashamed and then you feel resentful and then you get indignant. Mm. Like so many of these conversations that start off with good intentions devolve into mutual resentment when people haven't thought about what it is that they're inviting people into and the circumstances under which they're doing them. You know, I can, I, I want to share what I've observed and, and what I think I hear you saying is that often the tactic that a leader or manager will take to make this, to make a conversation quote unquote acceptable is to make it informal. I'm going to tack it on. I'm going to be like, Oh, Hey, by the way, listen, I just saw this. I just want to make sure you're okay. And what I hear you saying is, whoa, that's actually doing more harm. Make it more, make it, uh, make it formal, a formal, like, Hey, come and check in with me. And also, like you said, opt in. So give them an option to make it a formal conversation. Don't ambush them in order to make it acceptable or, or palatable, let's say. Give people the option, give people the choice to opt in. So, you know, based on generational differences, look, there are five generations in the workplace. I don't need to tell you this. There are five generations in the workplace today that show up with completely different values, right? Gen Z is wrecking shop. They are gender fluid. They are demanding inclusion. They're demanding that their leaders speak and show up in a certain way, and they want to work for mission-driven organizations. My father was born in 1944 and picked cotton in the rural segregated South. Oh, there was no diversity and inclusion. <laughs> my father, my, you know, was coming into the workplace. He walked off the farm and joined the military when he was 18, right? So completely different context, completely different set of expectations in the workplace. So right. like we have senior executives that grew up during 
segregation, right? So they just have a different set of expectations. They have seen so many different things and their level of tolerance is gonna to be very different. Their level of comfort is gonna be very, very different than somebody entering into the workplace, you know, with their first job as a marketing associate at an ad firm or something like that. So it's just, we have to remember that we have different expectations, different levels of comfort and different levels of comfort in terms of how we like to communicate. Younger folks are much more comfortable communicating with mediated by technology, right? And you ask them for a one-on-one, -on -one, instant panic attack, right? So it's, it's we have to calibrate for that. It's almost as and bad we, as making a phone call, right? You're like, don't, oh, come on. What, do not call me. What are you talking about? Let's not about? be unreasonable here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so like all of these things are, are playing in, in, in the background. So we want to be really intentional about the way that we do it. So I'll give you like one specific example. Um, I remember when the George Floyd video started circulating mm. and I had long since broken up with traumatic videos of black body suffering violence. And so when I got a, I literally got a, I literally got a text from my friend who was in the woods with some HR professionals doing God knows whatever HR professionals do in the woods uh, when you're this person. And, you know, she was like, can we hop on the phone really quickly and talk about this? And she was a white woman. She was very much fired up and wanting to be a part of a positive conversation. I, on the other hand, wanted nothing to do with this conversation. I wanted to enjoy, you know, it was the pandemic. I wanted to enjoy whiskey and pie and uh, detachment, right? So we were in very different places. I'm not even sure if I responded to that text. So like we were in very different places and I had a very different relationship with those sorts of headlines. Like, Josh, I have literally walked out of movies before when the tension, I don't know if you've ever seen like Hotel Rwanda. I still haven't finished Hotel Rwanda because I just had so much like stuff at the time around just the specter of violence against black bodies. And so based on where somebody is, what their sensitivities are, what their triggers are, what they're carrying, what they're holding, what they're bringing, in, and this might not even be related to their race or gender or their ethnicity, they might have a, a, a loved one that's suffering or that recently transitioned and they might not have the capacity. So all that to say your check-in from a place of care, from a place of concern might actually land in a way that you don't intend because they're trying to create a healthy distance from just the hype cycle of the media, right? That is just spewing this triggering yeah agitating yeah. confronting um these headlines that keep us addicted to in outrage right because that's the social media business model wow yeah that's really really interesting and um i think uh definitely a good way to start to reframe how to think about addressing this so um you know, in my mind, what you're saying is, hey, stop, take a breath, be a little more self-aware. And I think that's a great preamble to most any leadership activity, whether it has to do with diversity or not. I think if there's one thing all leaders need more of, which is, is self-awareness. And especially if in this era of multi-generational offices, and it's, it is not enough that you don't make mistakes. It sounds to me like if I were to reflect, um, today's leader needs to be willing to engage and be okay making mistakes and doing it in an honest way. Mistakes are fine. Forgive yourself, 
forgive each other and model what it's like to walk it back to say, hey, I got that wrong. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. I was doing uh, I was doing a workshop in Salt Lake um, earlier this year, and the head of a division closed out our session. We spent a couple of days with these these folks that were in from all over the world, and many people were in from Europe, and so there were significant cultural and language differences there. And he shared the story. I wasn't expecting him to share the story, but um, he shared a story where his grandmother always told him um, to avoid saying, insert this German word, but to always say this German word. The translation was never say people of color, always say colored. And you might be hearing this and say, that's exactly wrong. Well, that's what I would say. Uh, and so in a meeting with American executives in English, uh, actually, was it in English? No, it was in German. Um, he actually did. I forget which one. But basically, he was in a meeting years later. And this is a very senior person working for uh, a company that a lot of us know. And he basically mentioned, he basically said colored instead of people of color. That was the guidance that somebody gave him who really wanted his um, he had his best interest at heart, um, who was trying to advise him from a place of love and equip him, um, you know, for uh, an important conversation. And he really got it wrong. Not only did he get it wrong, nobody told him for weeks that this was reverberating throughout the organization. And he was so incredibly embarrassed. And so like, that's an example of when a leader has to step up and really own it. That's what I would call something pretty close to a worst case scenario. <laughs> the worst thing to happen isn't stepping in it. The worst thing to happen is not being willing to own it and say, I messed up uh, and I'm working on it. I have heard you. Because what tends to happen is people dig their heels in, they get defensive, a little bit too much conservative talk radio comes out, and then you call ready set and say, hey, we've got a, you know, the pitchforks are out and, you know, the yeah. are, are, you know, yeah. it's really hard to unring that bell. So yeah. it is fine to make yourself make mistakes, give yourself and give each other the grace um, and also, you know, have that self-reflection, have that awareness and ask for help, ask for help. Is it possible? And if it is, how is it possible to set an expectation in your team, group, organization that it is that mistakes can be made, and and as long as you're owning that, it's okay. Because I feel like where we started this conversation, people are afraid. One wrong word, and they're freaking fired. Right? Like that's like worst case scenario. I don't want to mess up. I don't want to sound, I don't want to, you know, and, and if we're saying, Hey, it is okay to make mistakes in my mind and the way that I work with my clients, Hey, can I have your permission to give you some honest feedback? Hey, in this session, is it okay if we, right, this is setting those expectations is a lot about what we do with, you know, when I think about creating values, let's say those are expectations around what we think success looks like. That's what we want. How am I supposed to know how to act if you don't tell me yeah. what is there? So is it possible? Can you go, hey, everybody, uh, we're going to be having co tough conversations forever now, and it's okay if you screw up. Like, how would you, is it possible? How would you do that? What a great question, Josh. Yeah, I 
at the top of my sessions, I guarantee people that they're going to make it up, make, mess it up, that they're going to make mistakes. I'm like, oh, That's I love the good that. News. Like, yeah, like, I love, I, I love that. That's what everybody. You, yeah, you're gonna, you're, you're, you're gonna mess this up. And, and so the question is, how do we recover? How do we save face? And how do we get away from this expectation that we are striving for perfection? Right? We're just not going to do it. Everybody's gonna mess up. And we play these all these subtle games. Like we expect that based on somebody's level of melanin, they're gonna be more conversant around some of these topics. Right. I don't know everything. When there yeah. was a uh, resurgence in violence against AAPI community members and there was the, all this violence, even the acronyms didn't roll off the tongue. So like, you know, like if you want me to talk about black, white racial relations, just wind me up and watch me go. Like, that's my jam. It's what I've done. I know the history. I can like that. That's my area. That's yeah. my zone. Yeah. But I don't have a deep history with the Asian American experience. And I can't give you the nuances and the experience of the Chinese Exclusion Act and how that has impacted the immigration story and uh, you know labor rights. And, and I, I, that's just not my area. And so I, ha I had a moment of, I don't call it imposter syndrome. I don't know if I believe in imposter syndrome, another conversation for another day. But <laughs> I just, I had some insecurity around my ability to talk about these things because I noticed in myself when I was talking about them, even the term AAPI did not roll off the tongue. I was like stumbling over my words and my phrases and I felt a little insecure there. So I just use that as an example of how we can level with people and say, look, we're gonna go on a hard journey. This is going to be challenging, but I'm gonna ask you all to hold each other accountable and hold me accountable. One of the things that Sheryl Sandberg used to do when she was trying to get away from gendered language, like saying, hey guys, or what's up guys, is she asked her team, I don't know if you can hear this, but she asked her team to knock on the table anytime that she did that. So it was a really good reminder for her to catch herself and to say, hey, folks, hey, y'all, that kind of thing, without being so interrupting to the flow of the conversation that you can't get anything done. I use that as an example to say, mm -hmm. leaders go first. And you say, folks, call me in. If I step in and if I mess up, please let me know. Um, I'll give you one more uh, example. A tool that people can use is instead of always calling people out when they make a mistake, they can practice calling people in. Calling somebody out is, we all know what that is. It's public, it can embarrass people, it can mm -hmm. result in shame and resentment and never talking to the person again. Yep. Calling somebody in is going to them afterwards. And I might say, um, I might hit you on Slack and say, uh, hey, Josh, do you have five? I wanted to give you a little feedback based on our conversation this morning. And you say, sure, um, let's chat, let's take a walk. And I'll say, listen, um, thanks for making some time. Look, you made a joke earlier this morning that I thought was actually sexist. And it surprised me because I expect more from you and I expect better of you. So what happened there? I just wanted to come to you directly because you know I've known you for a while and that just didn't jive. So that's calling you in. And that gives you an opportunity to understand the impact of what you said, to get the perspective from somebody whose perspective that you hopefully trust. It mm. gives you the opportunity to metabolize and save face. And crucially, it gives you an opportunity to come back publicly and hopefully repair harm and acknowledge that, hey team, wanted to let you know that I did some reflection and somebody called me in about this and I really appreciate them. But yesterday I made a joke and that joke was not okay. Um, I want to recognize that I 
as a leader, set the tone here. And if I'm doing it, I'm saying that it's okay. Well, it's not okay. And I want to sincerely apologize for the harm um, that I caused there. So that's like the life cycle of how we might use a mm -hmm. compassionate tool to mm -hmm. hold each other accountable while not shaming and embarrassing people because it's shame and embarrassment that is just really corrosive to our self-image. One uh, one aspect that I want to push on for just a few another minute or so, which is what I have observed is that that great if you have a skill team that can happen and and that's a possibility but it happens less often when it is the team leader who will make this joke or whatever make that comment whose whose responsibility is that cuz i don't know maybe you have trust maybe you don't have trust but it is much less likely that someone is going to feel comfortable stepping forward and saying, hey, boss, it's not okay. Now, if we were all evolved and, and you know, straightened spines and, and we were able to have that, you know, it's like that it is a conversation that is okay and has been shown to be okay in this office. Great, fine. But that's not where we are right now. So, I mean, what, I don't know. I don't even know what the question is. It's like, I'm just putting myself in this position. I'm like, there's no, no way I would do that. Yeah, so- Let's be real. I love being able to pay rent. I love not being <laughs> right. employed. Yep. And I am not encouraging people to get fired up and risk it all on the basis of, you know, an inappropriate joke that your boss made. That is not what I'm saying. What I am suggesting is that there are things that we can do. I have this, I, this, I, I call it the minimum viable interruption. So we have it in our head. I don't know if this joke is going to land. We have it in our head that in order to intervene when harm occurs, we need to like freestyle Martin Luther King's I have a dream speech to perfection. Like we really need to be blameless and be able to categorize the kind of bias and harm it is. I don't think that's the case. It might be something as simple as saying, yikes, or really? Or putting a question mark in chat, right? So if you are noticing something that's not okay and you're around other people, somebody else is probably noticing it as well. And so if there's anything that you can do to interrupt the flow of the conversation, throw a wrench in there, offer some kind of surface area for somebody else to double dutch into, enforcements generally tend to materialize. And so you don't have to feel like you're the only one noticing it because that silence um, can have an air of complicity to it. It is kind of co-signing it. So if there's something you can do, if you can intervene imperfectly, and of course you have to calibrate this, if it's appropriate to talk to your boss and you have the kind of relationship where um, they would appreciate that kind of feedback behind of the scenes, of then course. by yep. all the means pull, pull that lever. If they're excoriating somebody and being terrible, then you, you, you might need to go for a much more confrontational route. Um, as that might be warranted. But I think it depends on your relationship with that person. I think you can also talk to other people and say, hey, was that weird to you all? That landed funny for me, right? You can just have these human check-ins with other yeah. people. That's what and I then think. And maybe work with other people to, to, yeah. to figure out what your response That's where I'm going, right? So I'm thinking, all right, the question mark or the yikes uh, feels... Um, you might call it passive aggressive, right? Where it's sort of like... And that leader 
most likely if they've made that comment before and they're not, you know, it's, it's, they just don't hear it. So I'm actually thinking, you know, what usually happens is the side chat, which is the benefit of zoom is I'm going to, you know, say chat to Willie and I'm going to say, yo, what the fuck was that? And you're like, yeah, that was awful. So now we have a little bit of camaraderie. I can release a little bit of that tension. Um, is there a, you don't want to attack them, but maybe there's some um, mode of kind of having like, hey, you don't even, it doesn't even have to be me and Willie confronting, you know, Jennifer or whomever it was, our boss. It can just be, I can come in and say, hey, quick, you know, I need a quick second. And I can just evoke, invoke the other person and say, hey, we noticed that this was, you know, this happened. So maybe you get a little more, a couple more um, bravery points by bringing in somebody else, at least citing them that maybe that could be. And again, I'm just, you know, picking up, you know, picking up and thinking about what you're saying and making me think about it. But I, sure. I think there could be something there, at least for me, that's what I would feel like if I could have that. All depends on the situation. All depends on the details. You might want to say something like, hey, uh, wanted you to let you know based on some side conversations that joke landed poorly. Not sure you want to address that or if you want to address it at all, but wanted to let you know. Right. right. That, you know, so it's not me. Messenger. I'm the messenger. And they're like, well, would you agree? And you can decide whether you want to say that or not. Yeah, but it also depends on what kind of person you are. I am very non-confrontational. I will go to great lengths not to experience <laughs> not the <so> discomfort. <laughs> yeah, so like I am, I am violently non-confrontational. I also use humor as a tool to lighten yeah. the mood. And so yeah. terms and conditions apply. You don't want to make a joke in a way that trivializes the harm that occurs and that rewards the person who's doing the bad behavior right, right 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 but you can deploy humor or just quickness on your feet to arrest something i mean one way to do this in a moment and this is like classic like if for example a guy is making a sexist joke to a woman um just ask him to explain the joke just say i don't get it explain it to me it's like uh what about that's funny the it, it is significantly less funny if you have to explain that innuendo, right? So you're diffusing that, is, that. Yeah. 100%. And so like asking somebody to repeat themselves is a powerful thing. Might mm. cost you your job in this context, but I think there are ways, again, based on your seniority, based on kind of relationship you have with that person, based on, I mean, some people react very poorly to being confronted. So maybe it's time to find a new job, right? Maybe, maybe. there are all sorts of tools available and yeah, devil's in the details with this stuff. But I, I love that That's we're good. grappling yeah. with this because I yeah. think the very conversation illustrates how challenging it is. I work for a 30 person diversity strategy firm. So we hold each other to account with these things. And, you know, we, we have a lot of practice. I recognize that in the real world, outside of the strange corner of the universe that that I um, that that I live in, these conversations are much more challenging. I was literally texting with one of my friends today, and she talked about how her her former boss. Uh, I'm going to send her this after after it goes live. Her former boss was talking over her so much in a meeting she literally muted him, and apparently the overlay on the video was. Her name has muted her former boss's name, and it was very effective and very funny. Um, actually, she said it was very awkward. So I just recognize that this stuff is really, really tricky. 
Uh, Willie Jackson, thank you so much for spending some time teaching me and us about this. I really, you know, obviously this is a critical series of conversations that needs to happen. And so I so appreciate you sharing your wisdom. Um, Willie Jackson's with The Ready Set and the what you can find him and the organization at thereadyset.co. Um, anything else you want to share? Final final thoughts, Willie, before we go? Uh, we need your voice. Um, don't get dejected. I know it's hard. I know there's a lot of work to do, but we desperately need your voice. Uh, thank you for your effort, Josh. Thank you for this platform. And um, this is a treat. Thanks for listening to Great Mondays Radio. Hey, if you want to be a guest, head over to greatmondays.com slash radio. We'd love to hear from you. And if you think this episode was interesting and your friends and fans would enjoy it, please share on social media. And if you want to get more people to understand the power of company culture in business today, please rate and review Great Mondays Radio on your podcasts app or podcast feed. It really helps us reach more people. If you want to make sure to hear more candid conversations with culture leaders, subscribe to Great Mondays Radio. And I'd love to connect with you. Find me on LinkedIn at aka Josh Levine on YouTube at Great Mondays. And you can always email me, josh at greatmondays.com. Find out more about our work with hypergrowth technology and social enterprise organizations or grab a copy of our book at greatmondays.com. I'm Josh Levine. Thanks for listening to Great Mondays Radio. Thanks.